you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we've been working through series in Mark through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to pick up today right, right where we left off last week in Mark chapter 14, verse 10. We're going to read through verse 42 today, Mark 14, 10 through 42. These are the best words that we will hear today. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat, my, uh, eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found that just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? 
Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, When I share my testimony with people, I I find myself gravitating not so much to the moment when I became a Christian, but to the moment when, as a Christian, the gospel became real to me. I became a Christian as a young boy. I, I, had a, I had a simple but real, genuine faith in Jesus. I was baptized, and I, I loved Jesus. But then something happened. I failed. I failed to be perfect. I failed to love Jesus. I failed to love others. I failed to remain pure. I failed to be humble. I failed to honor my father and my mother. I failed to be gentle and kind. I failed at being faithful. And it was like my failure came to a culmination when as a freshman at college at Coastal Carolina, I failed at football, I failed at school, and I failed at not being a hypocrite. And it was in that time of my life when it just sort of seemed like one fall after another until for the first time in my life, I actually felt like a failure. And even though I'd been a Christian at that time for most of my life, it was in that season when the gospel became real to me. See, I don't have this crazy conversion story as it pertains to uh, when I became a Christian, or at least it might seem that way on the surface. But I do have a crazy salvation story in in this, that all I've done my whole life is just fail Jesus over and over and over again. And Jesus has loved me over and over and over again. And that is when the gospel became real to me. Failure is a scary thing for most of us. We may not even be able to define it, but we know what it feels like. We know what it feels like to put ourselves out there and to fail, to, to try something and to fall short, to swing and to miss. And the world has two predominant approaches that it offers us to, to deal with our failure. The one is more flashy, and it is to idolize our failure. You know, all, all of life gets carved up into winning and losing. Uh, you are what you accomplish. Your identity equals your success. And when you are what you accomplish, and your identity equals success, then you inevitably idolize your failures. They haunt you. They eat you alive. And they become how you view yourself. But the other approach to failure, which is becoming more and more common, is to minimize failure. To tell ourselves, well, it wasn't really that big of a deal. You know, to look around and try to find somebody else who maybe has done something worse than us, to repeat that mantra over and over again, nobody's perfect. My goal today is to bring our failures under the light of the real Jesus, the real Jesus who does not minimize our failures, but who also doesn't reject us for our failures, the real Jesus 
loves us in and through our failures. So my goal this morning is that every single one of us would leave here today owning the fact that our failure is great, but also believing deep in our hearts that the love of Jesus is greater. That that is good news for failures like us. So we have two truths today, and I'm just going to go ahead and give them to you both up, up at the front. The first is our failure is great. And then the second is his love is greater. We're going to take a real honest look at ourselves, and then we're going to take a real honest look at Jesus. So our first truth, our failure is great. In Mark chapter 14, what we just read, uh, we see everyone around Jesus fail and fail miserably. Uh, This scene is just filled with raw human failure. Mark 14, I think, resonates with us because in so many ways we can see ourselves in this story. And so for the next few minutes, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the text and we're just going to pile up the evidence against ourselves. We're going to look at 10 things in this passage, 10 ways that we fail And normally we love for you, when you're uh, listening to sermons here at the church, we'd love for you to take notes. But here's maybe just a suggestion, especially for this first truth today. Uh, We may actually, you may actually get more out of this today if you don't take notes. If you just sit and listen and reflect. These ten things are less intended to instruct us and more intended to search us. And so I want to invite you to just just listen and reflect and examine examine your own heart this morning. So 10 things. First, we hurt people we should love. In verse 10, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Judas should have loved Jesus. Jesus had invited Judas into his inner circle of his twelve disciples. They had spent three years together, uh, traveling together, eating together. They had become friends. They had become companions But because of the selfishness in Judas' heart, because of the idols gripping Judas' heart, he denied, he betrayed, excuse me, his his good friend Jesus. And it would certainly be easy where we sit to judge Judas, uh, because it is a a terrible and a sad thing that he had done. But when we pause and think about our own lives, we realize that we, out of our selfishness and driven by our idols, have hurt many of the people that we should love. Uh, We've hurt uh, member, other members of this church, we've hurt our family members. We've even hurt some of our best friends. Why? Because while maybe we love them, we love ourselves more. Second, we make bad trades. Verse 11 says, And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So we realized that one of the things that was motivating Judas to betray Jesus was, was money. Uh, Apparently, this seemed like a decent trade to him, but we know that, that, that Judas must not have been paying attention back in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Judas could have been paid up to the entire world, and this would have still have been a terrible trade for him to make. And yet, so many times you and I do the same things. We're so short-sighted. We, we trade in something that's right in front of our face for some better future. We're like Esau, who gives away his birthright just for a, a bowl of soup. If I could say it this way, uh, uh, Judas is a complete idiot. And sometimes we are too. 
Third, we feel sorry, but not godly sorrow. Verses 17 to 20. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So Jesus tells them that the betrayal is coming. And verse 19 tells us that they were sorry, but we have to understand that this is the kind of sorry that you feel when you get caught. They were sorry, but not sorry enough to examine their hearts, not sorry enough to to repent of their sin, not sorry enough to fast and pray and seek uh, the face of God. And so many times, you and I are no different. Sure, maybe maybe we feel bad after a tough sermon or... Maybe we feel a little convicted after we read a a tough Bible passage, but not bad enough to repent, not bad enough to to weep and to mourn over our sin. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says this, "For, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, in other words, the kind of sorry that you feel when you get caught, produces death. How many times have we been like, like these disciples and we felt worldly grief, but not godly grief? We're sorry we got caught, but not sorry enough to actually run back into the presence of God and ask Him to change our hearts and, and make us new. For we make it about us. I want to read verse 19 again, and I want you to just listen carefully to how the disciples respond. Jesus tells them that he's going to be betrayed, and it says, They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? No one asks Jesus anything about how he's doing. No one moves towards Jesus with love and compassion. Uh, Jesus, their, their leader, their shepherd, has told them that he's going to be betrayed, and not one of them stops to think how this might affect Jesus. Every single one of them is just thinking to themselves, How does this affect me? How many times in a real honest moments of life have I I made it about me? Someone else is really the one going through something. Someone else has been hurt. And all I can think about is how it relates to me. Not about how God could be glorified. Not about how Jesus could be served. Not about how I could enter in and love that person. Just me, me, me. Fifth, we run away when things get tough. Verse 27 says, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is quoting from Zechariah 13.7, and he's telling the disciples that it's like he's a shepherd, and they are his sheep, and that he as the shepherd is going to be struck, and they they as the sheep are going to be scattered. But lest we think this is some sort of innocent scattering, Jesus clearly tells us that, that the disciples will fall away. This is a fall that they're experiencing. When the going got tough, the disciples ran. When it came time for them to put a little skin in the game, they fled for their lives. Some of my biggest regrets in life come from times when I ran away when things got tough. Some of what I feel like have been my greatest failures have have come when I avoided doing the right thing because it was the harder thing. We are addicted to a kind of self-preservation and comfort so that when things get tough, we hit the road. 
We run away from families. We run away from friends. We run away from churches. And sometimes we run away from Jesus because we're being called to put skin in the game. But we love our comfort so much that it's easier to hit the road. Six, we make overconfident promises. Maybe as I was just you know, talking through that last, that last one there, you're thinking to yourself, well, that's not me. I'm, I'm not the kind of person who runs when things get tough. I'm the kind of person that sticks it out. And you can almost hear yourself in the disciples as they respond to Jesus in verses 29 and 31. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This group of disciples was dripping with overconfidence. Not me, Jesus. I'll stick with you. I'll even die with you. How many times have we had all the best intentions and we made those solid and bold promises but then failed to follow through on our commitments? How many times have we made promises to God but in the end we lacked the strength or the desire or the endurance to actually follow through on what we promised God that we would do? Seven, we miss opportunities. In verses 32 to 34, it says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. These are the best friends of Jesus. And Jesus opens up to them with extreme vulnerability. This is the lowest moment in the life of Jesus up to this point. He's tasting the weight of sin. He's feeling the burden of the wrath of God. Jesus is literally sweating blood in agony. And his friends are taking a nap. The one thing that he asked them to do, to wait and watch. And they wouldn't do it. See, our failures in this life aren't just found in the bad things we do. Our failures are also found in the good things that we should have done that we didn't. Our failures come in the form of missed opportunities. I can remember so many times when I should have said something, but I didn't. I should have prayed, but I didn't. I should have shown up for someone, but I didn't. Eight, we allow fatigue to get in the way. Fatigue is real, fatigue is powerful, and fatigue can be a real source of our failure, verses 37 and 38. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is what we have to remember. If you take the 12 disciples and you take Jesus, you have 13 human beings. All of them were just as tired as the other. All of them were just as weary of the other as the other. Eleven of them couldn't stay awake. Two of them couldn't fall asleep. The two that couldn't fall asleep were Jesus and Judas. Jesus and Judas were both on a mission. 
Jesus and Judas were both up to something. It wasn't that the other 11 couldn't stay awake. It's that they weren't invested enough to stay awake. We've all cared about something so much that we couldn't shut our eyes. It kept us awake at night. But when there's no investment, when we're not feeling like it's our mission or our problem, that's when fatigue takes over and we give in. Nine, we reject wisdom. Remember how emphatically Peter had promised Jesus that he would not deny him? In verse 38, Jesus gave Peter some great wisdom. He said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus himself was praying to the Father in his moment of need. Jesus knew that the only way that he would have the ability to withstand the temptation was to be in close communion with God. And so he was pleading with Peter to watch and to pray and to seek God. But Peter was so strong in his own strength. Instead of listening to what Jesus had to say, Peter went with his own intuition. Now, it's easy to look, look at Peter just like we might look at Judas and to think, you know, why didn't, he, why didn't he listen to him? Why didn't he just do what Jesus said? But as soon as those words come out of our mouths, we realize that we do the same things. So many people give us great advice, but we think we know better. So many people point us towards God's wisdom, but in the end, we just trust in our own strength and intuition. And tenth and finally, we don't learn from our mistakes. Verse 41 says, And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Through their drowsy sleep, they could overhear Jesus crying and weeping in agony. And once he comes back, twice he comes back, Three times he comes back, and not one request and not one word that he's spoken to them has made a lick of difference. We would like to think that we learn from our mistakes, but do we? Aren't we actually a lot more like these disciples? That not once, not twice, but three times, we just sort of find ourselves right back in the same failure time and time again. This is my story. I have failed Jesus over and over and over again. And I doubt that there's one of us here today who doesn't carry around with us a sense of our failures. And and the world's best options are either to idolize that failure or to minimize that failure. But what about the real Jesus? In the classic Pilgrim's Progress uh, by John Bunyan, the main character Christian becomes a Christian. He enters the narrow gate and follows Jesus, but the burden that he's carrying on his back doesn't fall off. And for the whole first half of the journey, the burden is killing him. And we might think that Christian just hadn't become a Christian yet, but instead what Bunyan is trying to teach us is that even after we become a Christian, 
many of us still go, go around carrying the burden of our failures. Christian's burden finally does fall off when halfway through his journey, he comes face to face with the gospel. And this is the song he sings once the burden falls off his back and as it's tumbling down the hill. He sings, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could anything ease the grief that I was in. Till I came here, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. We've taken a good, honest look at ourselves, but now it's time to take a good, honest look at the real Jesus. So while it's true that our failure is great, our second truth, his love is greater. There are two key concepts that will prove the greater love of Jesus to us from this text today. The two key concepts are the covenant and the cup. The covenant and the cup. In verses 22 through 25, we see Mark's account of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus and his disciples are there eating the Passover meal. And Jesus takes the elements there at the Passover meal and he interprets them through himself. And so let's read 22 through 25 again. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I want us to notice in particular today that when Jesus gives them the cup, he says this interesting phrase, this is my blood of the covenant. What does he mean by that? Uh, Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you've taken the Lord's Supper, you've taken communion time and time and time again, and you've heard that phrase, this is my blood of the covenant but you've never really stopped to think about what Jesus meant when he said that. Uh, You've maybe heard people talking about having a relationship with God. A covenant is the terms for that relationship in the Bible. A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties in which there are terms, promises, and sanctions. For example, uh, if I I, I have a contract with a local internet provider... The terms are that I pay a certain amount of money every month, and in return, they promise that they will make sure that I have good working internet running throughout my home. The sanctions would come into play if I did not pay my bill. The first month of not paying, I would receive a late fee. That is the terms of the contract. I pay, and they provide. In the Bible, there are a number of different covenants, but there's only two types of covenants. A covenant of works and a covenant of grace. In a covenant of works, the terms are conditional. But in a covenant of grace, the terms are unconditional. So if I were to go under contract with an internet provider, and they were to guarantee that whether I paid or not, they would supply me with internet, that is what you would call free internet. 
So in the covenant of works, I pay and I receive the promise. But in the covenant of grace, I receive the promise whether I pay or not. I receive the promise for free. When Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, he's talking about what the Bible calls the new covenant, which is a covenant of grace. Jesus is offering us something. He's offering us failures, something that cannot fail. So what does it mean to participate in the covenant of grace? It means to have a relationship with God that does not depend on performance. It means that we receive the promises as a free gift and not as a wage. All of the promises received unconditionally. Now you might be thinking, okay, that sounds pretty cool, uh, but what are these promises? What is it that Jesus is promising us when he says, this is my blood of the covenant? Well, let me just name a few. One is regeneration, that God comes into our hearts and he makes us a new creation. Uh, the Bible says, calls this the new birth. Another is justification, that God acquits us from all sin, past, present, and future, not on the basis of anything that we've done, but completely on the basis of the merits of Christ. Uh, adoption. God legally makes us his child, and we are not second-rate children. The Bible goes so far as to say that we are co-heirs with Christ. Sanctification. God sets us apart from sin, and he sets us apart for himself. Perseverance. God promises that once we are his, we can never not be his. He will never unjustify us. He will never unadopt us. There is never a scenario in which we will not receive all of the full and free inheritance in Jesus Christ. Eternal life. God gives us a share in his glory and goodness, and this is a resurrected eternal life. And the best promise of all in the covenant of grace is that God gives us himself. He promises to be our God, and he promises that we will be his people. So surrounded by his failing disciples, Jesus gives them the bread, and he gives them the cup that represents something that cannot fail. And the reason that it cannot fail is because the covenant of grace is sealed in the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the surety of the covenant. Jesus is the guarantor of the covenant. The, the signature at the bottom of the contract is the blood of Jesus. Whenever a covenant was made in the Bible, it was the sanctions that gave it its power. There were no consequences for breaking it, then it wasn't worth entering into. So to re represent the seriousness of the sanctions, a sacrifice, was, a sacrifice was made. Animals were killed. And what the blood represented is that if someone within this contract breaks the contract, it equals death. Uh, take, for example, marriage. Now, I know that's an interesting transition there, but take, for example, marriage. Marriage is the closest thing that we have in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in our world today to the biblical covenant. 
If what it meant to break the covenant was to die, then it raises the value of the covenant. The idea of a no-fault divorce inevitably leads to more cases of divorce, but it also causes marriage to lose its significance. When you make a relationship legally binding and there are consequences for breaking that relationship, it elevates the value of the relationship. And it actually shows that there is more of a commitment of love within that relationship. Right? I love Allie more because I have legally bound myself to her in marriage. In the new covenant, the covenant of grace, the reason that the promises will be rewarded unconditionally is because Jesus met the terms and he took the penalties so that all that is left is unconditional promise. Jesus took the fault so that we could enjoy the benefits. He paid all of our late fees in advance so that all that there is left for us is unconditional, free, and full promise. All we have to do is receive it by faith. I heard Don Carson uh, tell a fictional story about the night before the Passover. Remember, our passage today is, is right there connected to the Passover. At the Passover, God had told the people that all the firstborn would die unless all the firstborn sons would die unless they sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. Remember, this is a fictional story. Uh, but the story goes that two Jewish neighbors were out late that night discussing the events together. And one man asked the other, aren't you a little worried that it won't work? And the other responded back and said, worried? Not at all. Are you? And the other man paused and responded, well, sort of. I mean, this is a little scary, but I guess if we did what he said, then we, we should be okay. And then Don Carson, who was telling the story, stopped, and he asked, That night, the death angel swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And then he paused, and he said, Well, of course, the answer is neither. promises of the covenant are secured by the blood, not by our confidence or our faithfulness. Jesus signed the covenant of grace with his blood before we were even born, which means that his eternal blood guarantees the promises completely outside of anything that we do or do not do. Do you see how that is good news for people like us? If we could break the covenant, we would have already. If it depended upon us in any way, it would fail. If we could sin our way out of this thing, we would have already. Christianity is the story of absolute failures who fail over and over and over again, receiving overwhelmingly wonderful things from God.
completely on the basis of Jesus Christ, who is the guarantor, the surety of the covenant. But I told you that there were two key concepts pointing us to the love of Jesus, the covenant and the cup. The covenant and the cup. So let's read verses 33 through 36 again. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In verse 36, Jesus prays to the Father who he completely trusts about a cup. This cup was a metaphor for our guilt and for God's judgment. This cup was the wrath of God. This cup represented the justice that was due for our sin that was going to be exacted upon Jesus. The judgment for our failures falling upon him. Jesus had planned this with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in eternity past. But now, in time, as it got close, it was as if the humanity of Jesus was ripping apart at the reality of what it would take to accomplish redemption. See, there are two cups in our passage today. There's the cup in the Lord's Supper, and there's this cup of judgment. One cup represents the covenant of life, and the other cup represents the curse of death. One cup is filled with joy, and one cup is filled with agony. One cup is filled with salvation, and the other cup is filled with damnation. One cup is filled with God's blessing, the other cup is filled with God's wrath. Jesus drinks the cup of agony so that we can drink the cup of joy. Jesus drinks the cup of damnation so that we can drink the cup of salvation. Jesus drinks the cup of curse so that we can drink the cup of blessing. Jesus drinks the cup of death so that we can drink the cup of eternal life. That is the real gospel for real sinners. And maybe we're left thinking, how does this moment in the garden relate to the actual cross? Well, Gethsemane teaches us that Jesus chose the cross out of love for us when he said, yet not what I will, but what you will. We realize that his desire to save us outweighed his desire to avoid the wrath of God. In Gethsemane, Jesus got a little taste of the cross so that he would know exactly what he was walking into, and we would know exactly how much he loved us. The agony of Gethsemane is the love of the cross. Because in Gethsemane, we realize that Jesus didn't get stuck on the cross. Jesus chose the cross, and he knew exactly what he was getting. You have the cup there and the bread in your seat. I want to invite you to take that out today. 
And I want you to hold it in your hand while we reflect just a little bit. If you want to take it and maybe hold the bread in one hand and hold the cup in the other. And what I want to do as you hold that bread and you hold that cup, I just want to reflect for a few minutes on our failures. And I want to look at it in three directions. First, I want to think about what this great love of Jesus has to say about our past. I would suspect that all of us here know quite well what our failures are. We may have attempted to minimize them. We may have attempted to self-justify them. We have maybe attempted to get them out of our heads. But today, holding the bread in the cup, we realize that our failures put Jesus to death. So instead of minimizing and self-justifying, I am asking us to feel the full weight of our failures so that we can feel the full weight of the love of Jesus for us. But we may also be living under crippling weight of our failures. We see them as a barrier between God and ourselves. We see them as our very identity. But today, holding the bread and the cup, we are reminded that Jesus didn't die for good people. Jesus didn't die for people who had their act together. Jesus died for failures, and he loved them to death. But second, I want us to consider what this means for our present. If all this is true about our great failure, and all this is true about the great love of Jesus, then it has massive implications for how we respond to the failures of others. In Colossians chapter 3, 12 and 13, Paul works out these dynamics for us. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. When we realize how great His love for us is in our fa failure, then we can begin to forgive others when they sin against us. I think that might be one of the scariest things about the gospel. Is that if Jesus loves me in and through my failure, then that means I should love my neighbor in and through their failure. This is the promise that we make to one another when we hold this bread and we hold this cup. And finally, I want us to consider what this means for our future. The fear of failure is real. And even though we might say we believe in Jesus, somewhere deep down we believe that God's love for us is dependent upon our future performance. As you hold the bread and the cup today, this is what these symbols mean for your future. If you are in Christ, you are just as secure in the middle of your failure as you will be in heaven one day. This bread and this cup is God's signature to us that whatever it means to be in the covenant, forgiveness, adoption, eternal life, resurrection, glory... It is guaranteed to us on the basis of nothing whatsoever that we have done. 
It is guaranteed to us on the basis of Jesus Christ. God is for us forever because of Jesus. Our failure is great, but his love is greater. And as they were eating, he took, the, took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take This is my body. Eat now in remembrance the body broken for you. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Take now and drink in remembrance the blood of Jesus, the blood of the covenant. God, I pray this morning that you would seal the gospel upon our hearts, that we would know that you have a wonderful and bright future planned for us, not because there's anything lovely in us, not because there's anything we've done to deserve it, but because we have a wonderful Savior who willingly chose to take the cup of wrath so that we could enjoy the cup of blessing. Lord, help us to respond to the love of Jesus with love, with worship, with, with a desire to live our lives for Jesus. Lord, draw us now by the power of your gospel to walk in faith and to worship you all the days of our lives. We, we love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we continue to worship. Amen.